Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Uh, this is going to be our Christmas Bible Breakdown. So I know it's still a couple weeks till Christmas, but we normally do our kids' lesson on the Sunday before Christmas because the Sunday after Christmas we typically don't have kids' men. So hopefully this will get you through all the way to the Christmas season. This will be the second to last Bible Breakdown for the year. And then, so we'll have a break next week. We'll have one that sneaks in right before the new year. And then uh, once we get into January, we'll be hitting the ground running again. But second to last one, hopefully this one can get you through to Christmas. Uh, and we're going to be looking at what it means for God to fulfill his promises. So that's our kind of Christmas theme for this Christmas is Christmas is a time when we remember that God fulfills his promises. So we're going to be in Isaiah 9, which uh, as you get to the end of the little segment that we're going to read, will look very familiar to you and often read during Christmas time. We're just going to be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 9. But yeah, it's, this is a time where we're going to see a prophecy about when God is going to fulfill his promises. So um, you may have heard the word Advent. You may know what Advent was or what Advent is. Or if you're like me, you've heard the word Advent a thousand times, but maybe for a really long time, you didn't actually know what it meant. So that was kind of me. I didn't really realize what I knew Advent was a thing, but I didn't know what it meant, what its significance was until a few years ago. So, but Advent, uh, the Advent of Christ is when he comes, right? But the season of Advent refers to um, this period before Christmas, which is defined kind of by this period of waiting and anticipation and yearning. So um, we not only kind of transport ourselves back to uh, the shoes of God's people before Jesus' first arrival and uh, are reminded of what it was like for them to wait for a deliverer for that ultimately to be met in Jesus. But we also realize our own sense of waiting and yearning and anticipation as we wait for Jesus' second coming. So it's really a season where we're reminded that things aren't the way that they are supposed to be, that we need deliverance, that we are waiting on God's full deliverance for Christ to appear. So we get to reflect back to people who got to see this fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. And then we, as New Testament believers, also get to look forward to Jesus' second coming. And so that's a very important thing, too, as we live in this time. Our uh, Jesus' first coming was not his last, and that we have a lot to look forward to, that there is a lot of brokenness that still exists in the world, that we still need a deliverer, that we look forward to that deliverance, but we get to put ourselves in the shoes of the uh, ancient people of God as well. So, uh, like I said, the theme of this one's going to be that God fulfills his promises, and we're going to talk about how he fulfills his promise in Jesus. But before jumping into that too much, I wanted to specifically talk about what promises Jesus fulfills. So I'm going to especially hone in here on this idea that God fulfilled in Jesus these promises about Messiah. So Messiah was this figure that people anticipated in the Old Testament. The Messiah specifically, um, also known as the Anointed One, but this is specifically meant to be Jesus, uh, or the, well, we know now it's Jesus, but this person would be in the line of David. So this is not just some general hero, but a specific one that was to be born in the line of David. But that's not the only promises that the Messiah ultimately fulfills, that Jesus ultimately fulfills. Um, and so I wanted to remind us of a couple we've gone over recently. So first, 
uh, we talked about a few weeks ago uh, when we talked about the fall is this proto-evangelium, this first gospel that we see in Genesis 3.15, this promise that though the serpent would strike the heel of the descendant of the woman, that he would crush the head of the serpent. So this first gospel, this first good news that someone would come along and destroy the one who had led Adam and Eve into sin. That's that first good news, that first gospel, that first hint of this plan of redemption that we see. So we see that as one of God's promises, this Messiah, this seed of the woman. And then we talked about even more recently with the Abrahamic covenant, starting in Genesis 12, going on through 15, 17, and the 20s of Genesis, um, which we summed up as land, seed, and blessing, this land to be in this this, this mass group of descendants that would um, be greater than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, but then also one specific seed, which is Jesus. So nice, nice little wordplay there. I'll remind you that this word seed in Hebrew um, can be either singular or plural. So we get to see it played out in Abraham's many physical descendants, um, but then also in that one special descendant in Jesus who um, is the ultimate seed of Abram. And then uh, also the blessing that uh, God promised Abram that he'd be a blessing to all nations, which we know through the work of Jesus, we are among those who are blessed among the nations. So that's another promise that uh, is about Messiah. Then the the big one, the one that really binds them all together, the one that creates the most, um, I guess, people most of people's expectations at the time was the Davidic covenant. So we see that specifically in 2 Samuel 7. That's where we kind of see the biggest thing. So we see here this promise that uh, God makes to David that he is going to um, have a house, throne, and kingdom is one way that it is uh, summarized. So house that there he would have a, a group of descendants, that those descendants would have a throne, that they would be uh, on the throne, and that there would be a kingdom, there would be a people to rule. So it applied in the short term to Solomon and some of those immediate descendants. But then, of course, we know that the people of Israel are taken from their land. They do not have a throne they do not have a kingdom. There's still a house, but then nobody really knows how to trace it. Um, and so we get to see that really fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But this Davidic covenant, this is where the term Messiah really um, finds its its roots and um, its expectation. But then also there's lots of prophecies about Messiah in the Psalms. Um, we see it in the major prophets. We see it in the minor prophets. Uh, if you haven't spent much time in the prophets, which would I put you in a majority of people. Um, there's a lot of just talk of God's judgment on his people for being disobedient, but there's always that, uh, that path toward hope that there will be a time when God will be able to forgive his people, that they will come back to him, that there will be this deliverer. So all of these promises we know are fulfilled fully in Jesus. So Isaiah 9 looks forward to when the chosen one of God appears, which we know to be Jesus, which we celebrate his first coming here at Christmas. So those are just some of the promises that God has made. Those are really, it's a subset of a subset. The promises of Messiah are a subset of all of the promises of God. And these ones I've listed, though they're important, they're just some of the promises about Messiah. And even when we're, what we're reading today is one of the promises about Messiah. Um, but we're reading about what it's like to when it will be fulfilled. And we can equate that to the Christmas story. So again, we're going to be in Isaiah 9. I'm going to start here in verse 1. Give us a little 
context for what this part means and how it will affect the rest of the chapter. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So this refers to this land that is around the Sea of Galilee, uh, east of the Jordan. So on the other side of the Jordan um, of like Jerusalem and most of the other cities that we see, Bethlehem, Nazareth, where Jesus is from. And um, is often referred to as Galilee of the nations because it had been some of the first land that Israel ceded to foreign nations. Um, and it had still a very high uh, Gentile presence. So it's kind of when he says brought into contempt, this is a land that people thought lesser of because, you know, it had been taken over. It had a lot of Gentiles and all that kind of thing. But he talks about a time when it's going to be made glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And we know that because uh, Isaiah prophesies it'll be made more glorious. We know that much of Jesus' ministry took place in the region around the Sea of Galilee. So the uh, land of Caper or the town of Capernaum, which is one of the major places that um, they would stay, Jesus and the disciples. That's um, like nor just north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, probably would fit into this uh, this area that's being described here in Isaiah. And so it's even though this land was contempted and people didn't think highly of it, it's made glorious because Jesus, part of his ministry was in these areas to these people. And so it's already there in this first verse. We we get to see how, as New Testament believers, we get to see how Jesus made a difference, how he made that come true. Um, now moving into verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So dark versus light is a big motif in scripture. We often see it in John's writings. So John is one of the big ones going to talk about children of light, children of darkness, walking in the light, walking in the darkness. That's one of his major themes, but it's a theme throughout scripture. Um, really, if we think about darkness, we think about sin. So we think about humanity's role in sin. We think about the absence of God. So in places where, uh, in, in people which God is um, not named, is not praised, is not worshipped, um, that is a place of darkness. And then also God's judgment. Um, another part that goes with darkness is God's judgment in part because of the first two, because there's sin and because there's no worship of God. Um, so there's also a judgment that comes with that, that theme of, of darkness. Um, but then on the other side, you have light, which represents not sin, but righteousness, not the absence of God, but the presence of God and not God's judgment, but God's blessing. So walking in the light is walking righteously, obeying God's commands, worshiping, God, to be children of light is to be children who are searching after their father, who we ultimately find in our Trinitarian God. We know that he is the one that we are to worship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So as children to this father, um, to be children of light, to be children who seek the presence of the Lord, seek righteousness, and ultimately receive God's blessing, which um, in the Old Testament, as we talked about, uh, God told them you will be blessed for obedience, cursed for disobedience, and um, we as New Testament believers have the wonderful promise that uh, Jesus became a curse for us so that we could be blessed. And so through faith in him, we receive God's blessing as his children. So big theme in scripture comes up here. 
And it's really with this tone of hope. The people who had walked in darkness have seen a great light. They dwelt in darkness. On them light has shone. So it's kind of just like the first verse with this comparison between how the land had been thought of before and then how it was made glorious because of the presence of Jesus. So it's kind of the same idea. These people were in a bad spot. Now they're going to be in a good spot. Verse three through five and says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramp tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So we get that nice uh, graphic depiction of uh, God's defeat over his enemies there in verse five with the garments rolled in blood and set on fire, which is pretty intense, but um, to a really a depiction of God's defeat over his enemies. But it's also uh, in verses three and four, we see that not only is this place which had been contempted, is it actually going to be glorious as these people who are going to are in darkness that seen a bright light, but we also see this promise. There is going to be this incredible joy, this incredible joy that comes with what we're going to see later on in verse six. He's just got this promise, this prophecy that it will be joy. And this joy will be like joy at the harvest. So thinking about like the first day of, you know, you go and you you get your wheat from the field on the first day, it's ready to go. And you've got a full field. It was a great season. Um, this idea that you you see there's, uh, there's plenty, there is uh, abundance, there is just a joy at thinking the Lord has provided in this harvest with uh, grain for food with other other things that you know they would harvest that the, that God had provided and that great joy that you think of a good harvest season or if you're more like a normal American and you don't harvest fields think about when you've got your little backyard garden and you're just desperately trying to grow a meaningful tomato just one a, a cherry tomato even and you see that nice fully formed, Maybe it's just a cherry tomato, but it looks good. It looks like the ones you get on your salad at a restaurant. And you're just like, yes, nobody, no animal or insect ate it this time. I didn't kill the plant this time. I've got a cherry tomato. Maybe if I've got a real green thumb, I've got a real tomato. Man, how exciting is it? That's the joy that we're talking about. And the joy that it sees it with abundance and with God's and recognition of God's goodness. So, uh, and it's not just joy too, but it's also, uh, or what, rather part of that joy is not just what God has provided, but also the relief of burden. So we see the yoke of this burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor have been broken. So all of these are just kind of imagery of what it's like to be just burdened down by most likely they would have in mind uh, foreign nations that had oppressed them. And he even looks back to the time of the judges. So um, if you are familiar with the judges cycle, the judges cycle is the people will disobey God. They'll be conquered by a foreign nation. They'll cry out to God for help. He'll send a deliverer and the people will worship God. And then they just go right back into it in perpetuity, pretty much there in judges. But your reference is this story back in judges. It says on the day of Midian. So uh, Midian was uh, the nation that had conquered Israel um, during the time of the judges. Um, and God 
sent a hero as he would do during the period of the judges. And he sent a really neat guy by the name of Gideon. So you may remember Gideon. He's the guy with the fleece. So when you talk about, I'm going to throw out a fleece or whatever, talking about Gideon. Um, he's like, I'm not sure if God's calling me. I'm going to throw this out here. If it's if it's wet and everything else is dry, I guess I'll believe it. And so that happens. He's like, well, maybe if this is dry and everything else is wet, I'll believe him. And then that happens. And he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe. But ultimately, God, even in the midst of Gideon's kind of reticence to be obedient, he uses him and he takes a group of, uh, he had a group of several thousand and God kind of whittles it down to 300, um, which of course is not generally regarded as a good strategy for war. Uh, but God used that to show that it was he who was providing the victory, not Gideon or their forces, um, their military forces. But Gideon, 300 guys, they trick these Midianites and drive them out of the land. So he's kind of referencing back to Isaiah's referencing back to that, of just this incense of when oppression is lifted. And that's what it will be like in this day when something happens. Again, up to we, we know, and if you're reading really any Bible, you probably got a little uh chapter heading that says for uh, for to us a child is born that's actually not really been mentioned yet um, but we're going to get to it finally here's kind of this crescendo like all these good things are going to happen and this is the reason why so starting in verse six for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we get finally the reason for all of this joy, all of this turning of fortunes, this light that's going to be shown. It's because this child will be born. A son is given. So we hear some things described about this child. He will be given great authority. Um, The government's going to be on his shoulders. So he's going to have some great authority. He's got these wonderful titles. And again, this is probably the part of uh, this chapter of Isaiah that you're familiar with around this time. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, And then verse 7, too, is when we get really the explicit part that this is the fulfillment of Messiah because of this mention of the throne of David and his kingdom to establish and to uphold it. So again, um, David's covenant, it was this idea of uh, a house, so kind of descendants, throne, so a place of authority and ruler and rule, and then a kingdom, people to rule. Um, those are the elements of the Davidic covenant. And here's how this kingdom is described here in Isaiah a kingdom increasing and everlasting in the line of David, just and righteousness from his time into eternity. So we get see this promise of a kingdom, an increasing kingdom. We see this promise of house, that it's in the line of David, that it's a government that uh, is of peace and no end. We see there's clearly this portion of rule, this uh, mention of rule. So all of those things in the Davidic covenant we see are, Again, it's kind of like a prophecy of a prophecy, right? But we get to see it now as we celebrate the Christmas season. We get to see, ah, we got to see the fulfillment of the prophecy about the prophecy. We get to see who it was, that who this child was, who this son was. So these amazing promises that um, have been 
promised in Isaiah 9. Before that, promised in 2 Samuel. Before that, promised to Abram. Before that, promised to uh, mankind in general. We get to see this promise that there will be deliverance, that someone will come that will fulfill these prophecies. And the season of Advent is when we remember what it's like that these people waited for Jesus, that the people of God waited for Jesus, that we too wait for Jesus in the second Advent. But we get to celebrate his first coming to earth as a baby. That's what we celebrate here at Christmas, this realization that all these promises that were littered throughout the Old Testament that pointed us to this special person that was going to come, that it's all realized in Jesus. God's fulfilled the greatest promises. All his greatest promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So as we start to apply this, as we start to think about this too, during the Christmas season, as we seek to make the Christmas season meaningful and not just another, you know, commercial hubbub and things like that, as we consider the true meaning of Christmas, one way we can do that is we can be reminded that God fulfilled this great promise in Jesus and we can be assured that he's going to continue to fulfill his promises to us. So just a couple that came to mind, he promises he won't leave us or forsake us. We are secure with Jesus. We are secure with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to worry about, oh man, is is God going to show up today? Am I going to find myself in utter darkness today? Of course, we all find ourselves in sin. We all find ourselves in an absence of the worship of God and feeling some of those things, but ultimately we know we're kept safe. We're kept in the light. We're kept as children of the light through what Jesus has done, through that promise of the Holy Spirit, who is our seal. He won't leave us or forsake us. He dwells within us if we have trusted in Jesus. A second one, he works all things for our good. And I feel like every Bible should have this in parentheses, his idea of our good. So that's from Romans 8. He works all things for good, for the good of those who love him. We just have to remember that it's his idea of good and his idea of good is not generally what we would choose for ourselves because we like to choose the comfort route. We like the good that feels really fuzzy and maybe doesn't necessarily create anything necessarily different or good in us, but he's creating in us. He's working all things for this good. And what God's ultimate good for us is to us for us to be conformed into the image of Jesus, that we become more and more like Jesus, that we reflect Jesus more and more as we live. So that's the role of, uh, when, even when we go through difficulties, even when we're caught in the mire of our own sin, that God is even working in the midst of our own sin to make us more like Jesus, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to a place where we will choose the light instead of choosing darkness in those times when our flesh and our sinfulness still comes up. We can be confident that even in the midst of those, that even though there may be some guilt that we don't need to devolve into shame because he's working even those things for our good and he's using those things to grow us. And a third, um, that he will take care of us. He promises that he will take care of us. In Matthew, he talks about how, look at the lilies of the field. They are beautiful. They're more beautiful than Solomon in all his splendor. Look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, but God feeds them. How much more important are you than the flowers or the birds? God values us so much more. He will take care of us. That's a promise. When we see Jesus fulfill these huge promises of Messiah that took place over thousands of years, and for it to be fulfilled in a way that no one could have expected how wonderful it was going to be, that 
God himself would come to earth, that he would live life as a human, that he would die the death that we deserved willingly. No one forced Jesus to the cross. He went willingly. That he would not only that he would die for our sins, but he would be resurrected on the third day, proving that everything he said was true, that who he was is who he said he was, that he was God in flesh, and that he was sufficient to take away all our sins. If he can fulfill all of that, if he can do all of that in a way that's more beautiful than we could have ever imagined, that we could have ever drawn up for ourselves, we can still find rest in those other promises that he has. No promise of God is small, but the promise of Jesus is incredible. The promise of Jesus is incredible that he could make a way for us to be gathered to him, that we could be called his children, that we could be reconciled to him. If he can fulfill that, he's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's going to be able to work all things for our good. He's going to be able to take care of us. And perhaps most importantly, he did it once. He came once. He fulfilled his promise to come one time. We can promise or we can be safe in the promise that he will fulfill this prophecy that he is going to come again. We can trust that God is not going to leave us here forever, that ultimately we are going to be redeemed and with him forever. He is going to fulfill the promise to come again, just as he fulfilled the promise to come the first time. And so as we spend that time in that waiting, that anticipation, that yearning of the Advent season, and we remember what it's like to see we're in a place where things aren't as they should be, the end result of all that waiting and anticipation and yearning should be a reminder of the promise that God will come again for his people.